2: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanshul. Here in Connecticut, local residents, including Ukrainian-Americans, continue to gather funds and supplies to help Ukrainians abroad. Coming up, we share how you can help, and we talk to two Ukrainian-American women in Stamford, a city with a thriving Ukrainian community. That's later. Russia's attacks on Ukraine have intensified since the invasion began. Multiple media outlets reporting that Russia's military has targeted civilians, even health facilities like a hospital with a maternity ward in the southern city of Mariupol on Wednesday. More than two million refugees have left Ukraine and many more are expected. Meanwhile, The New York Times reports U.S. lawmakers have finalized a bill to send more than 13 billion dollars in emergency aid and weapons to Ukraine. In just a few minutes, we're going to hear from Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom is a historian, Marcy Shore, who's the Yale University Associate Professor of History. Marcy, welcome to Where We Live.
0: Uh, Thank you so much for inviting me.
2: Now, uh, you wrote The Ukrainian Night about the Maidan Revolution back in the winter of 2013 and 2014. So when you reflect back on that event, tell our listeners why this was so critical. uh, When we think about the relationship between Russia and Ukraine uh, and also the Ukrainian spirit that's been um, shown to the world in the last few weeks.
0: It was a a privilege and a gift to be able to bear witness even from a distance to the revolution on the Maidan. I'm a historian of Eastern Europe. I've been hanging around Eastern Europe since I was a, a student in the early 1990s. The Maidan was the most extraordinary thing I had seen happen in real time. It was not only a political transformation, it was an existential transformation. Um, It was a moment of of a society finding their own voice, you know, and it was the moment of of the forging of a civic nation, of the overcoming of all sorts of boundaries, you know, between different ethnic groups, between different language groups, between different religious groups, but also between workers and intellectuals, people from the city, people from the countryside, and generationally, between parents and children, between fathers and sons. it was it was a real revolution of the kind that historians only rarely get to watch in real time, and I think there was a real sense of empowerment. Um, what, one thing I, I'd want to mention about the Maidan too—I know that not all our viewers there's, would would be familiar with it. It was the the Maidan is a square in the center of Kiev. It's a very large city square. It's also a complex geographical space which allows for various kinds of things to be constructed there, and. One of the things that was so amazing about the Maidan was that it was not just a protest movement, it was the building of a whole parallel polis, a whole parallel society. So for months out there in the winter you had not just people who were there protesting a brutal regime but you had elaborate kitchens you had a whole infrastructure you had people cooking people making tea you had medical points you had you know distribution of clothing uh, open an open library concerts and open university film screenings training sessions it was a whole parallel world and a feat of self-organization the possibility of civil society to step up and self-organize
2: so what is your reaction now to what we have seen happen uh, vladimir putin's actions over the last uh, two weeks including why you believe what he is saying is so heinous uh, his method methods of justification including quote decommunization
0: um what he is saying is heinous. That's not a surprise to me because he has said so many heinous things. You know, people say, "Are you surprised in some way?" No, I'm still shocked the way when you see such pure evil play out in front of you. It's always a, it's always a visceral shock, no matter how much you think you were intellectually prepared for that possibility. You know, he has spun various stories you know about why he has you know suddenly to descend upon you know in an unprovoked way attack an independent country massacre people bomb civilians um, none of them make any sense you know one of them is that the, there has been a a Nazi conspiratorial dictatorship in Kiev and he has to go rescue the the poor Ukrainian brothers and sisters who are native russian speakers um this is so absurd i'm not even sure it bears responsibility to, but I can point out to listeners that um, not only is there no CIA-sponsored Nazi dictatorship, um, there's no Nazi dictatorship in in, in any way. The president of Ukraine is a Jew. He is also a native Russian speaker. His Russian is arguably still better than his Ukrainian. Um, He was elected in genuinely democratic elections with 73% of the vote.
2: Mm. When you look at what uh, Putin has said again, uh, including uh, in late uh, February, uh, you know, contrast that to the, the Putin of, of of 2013, 2014, and, and you know, the, the concern about, uh, you know, what this man is capable of and, you know, the messaging that you're hearing when he speaks, Marcy.
0: I am... Terrified. I, I so I listened to Putin's Crimea speech quite carefully in 2014. You know, after the sniper massacre that ended the revolution on the Maidan, there was a ceasefire. The brutal gangster president then fled across the border to Russia. Um, Putin exploited this moment when, you know, a brutal government had been overthrown and a new government hadn't been yet put in place to illegally annex the Crimea to to instigate a war in the east. Um, And then he gave this very kind of grandiose, you know, victorious speech about how Russians Crimea has been returned to you. And that speech was it was also chilling in its way. it was based on lies but it was very sharp in a manipulative way. you know he was a grand chess master on top of his game. He was shrewd, he was cynical, he was calculated but you know he clearly was was playing a very complicated game. When I listened uh, two weeks ago now two and a half weeks ago it's all been a blur the, the Monday before the invasion started to the hour-long speech that he gave, I thought this is no longer the same man. His Russian is no longer so good. He sounds much more cut off from reality, much more deranged. Um, And I thought we have to shift our paradigm because we are no longer in the paradigm of the grandmaster chess player with cold calculation playing a very shrewd grain. Now we are in a Shakespearean drama and an aging you know an, an aging dictator has facing his own mortality has quite possibly decided to destroy the whole world there's no more rationality there i thought this is somebody who is easily capable of blowing up the world
2: mm. A lot of people uh, feel similar to you, that this is terrifying. And we look at how these uh, strategies by the West to de-escalate, you know, the the immediate impact, uh, it hasn't been so. And so when we think about uh, the next few weeks, the next few months, uh, from what you have shared, Marcy, can we assume that Putin cannot be negotiated with? And that is that is the scary part of what he is capable of.
0: I do think we have to abandon the rational actor model i think we're not in a rational actor model you can figure so much out if you're analyzing the world as a chess game and you assume that both players however not nice they might be or one of them might be are playing by the rules but what about when somebody takes the chessboard and throws it up in the air and stomps on it you know then you're in a different model i I should say there was an important interview that i think was missed in the west with gleb pavlovsky who is a former Soviet dissident-turned-political technologist-turned-oppositionist, you know oppositionist, who was one of the political technologists and spin doctors responsible for bringing Putin to power. Later, they had a falling out. He's now become very remorseful and changed sides. He gave an interview to Echo Moskvy, an independent Russian television station, which has since been shut down, hours after the invasion started. Um, he's somebody I would listen to seriously, not because he always has clean hands, but because he knows Putin very well. And he said, there's no rationality here. We're not in the realm of rationality. This isn't a move that can be understood through logic.
2: You're hearing Marcy Shore here on Where We Live. She's a Yale University Associate Professor of History. As we talk about the latest in Ukraine, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. In just a few moments, we hope to hear from Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, who is a member of the Foreign Relations uh, Committee. Uh, Marcy, I understand that you've spent much of your adult life in Central and Eastern Europe. And so what are you hearing from loved ones in Ukraine?
0: They are holding up. They are trying to be very strong. Um, They will absolutely fight. There is an unprecedented solidarity I have seen unprecedented solidarity actually on two sides. I have never seen so much solidarity, you know, among Americans, between Americans and Europeans, among Europeans from all different countries, even, you know, the quite right wing nationalist populist Polish government and Hungarian governments have like gotten in, you know, gotten in line to some extent with the rest of the European Union. Um, Polish civil society has done an extraordinary job, you know, trying to take care of, you know, over- a million and a half refugees that had flooded in in two weeks um there's an incredible amount of solidarity in terms of the response and there's been an extraordinary amount of solidarity that my friends in ukraine are describing in fact what they say are things like the solidarity is indescribable i i got one one message a few days into this you know by a friend and he says marcy you have no idea how happy i am because even i i have never seen people like this you know, the, the generosity, you know, and the courage, you know, and the determination. It's it, it's something I didn't know I'd experience in my lifetime. Mm.
2: Again, that's Marcy Shore, Yale University Associate Professor of History. I wanted to turn now to Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, who joins us for a few minutes uh, by phone. Senator Murphy, welcome back to our show.
1: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
2: And so let's start off, I wanted to hear your reaction to recent events in Ukraine. And again, when we hear President Zelensky asking the West to establish no-fly zones, uh, your concern with that request?
1: First of all, the performance of the Ukrainian military is absolutely stunning. Um, this has been a, uh, a absolutely heroic performance by the Ukrainian people. And um, they deserve American support. Um, We are going to pass today through the United States Senate an assistance package that is going to put thousands of additional troops and equipment on NATO's eastern flank, is going to continue to flow weapons to the Ukrainian military, but also put a bunch of humanitarian assistance on the table to make sure that people who need to flee can flee and that we get food aid into the country. Um, On this request for a no fly zone, There really is no such thing as a no-fly zone uh, over Ukraine right now. Uh, If the United States put up jets in the air, we would immediately be in combat with the Russian military requiring a declaration of war against Russia by the United States Congress. President Biden is right to say that we are not interested in direct confrontation with Russia. That would lead to World War III. We are the two biggest nuclear superpowers. And there's a reason why the United States and Russia have never been in direct conflict uh, since the end of World War II. Um, and we shouldn't start now. So that's why we can't uh, go forward with a no-fly zone, because it really doesn't exist. Uh, Russia wouldn't honor it, and we would have America and Russia at war. But we should do a lot of things short of a no-fly zone, short of very intensely provocative actions to support Ukraine
2: that humanitarian aid that defensive equipment is so important uh, yet uh, the world is watching uh, civilians be killed uh, a country uh, battling against uh, i think the the, the phrase uh, david versus goliath uh, and and so much concerned about what will happen uh, to ukraine uh, senator murphy along the lines of what you just shared uh, there were also similar concerns over accepting fighter jets from poland uh, the new york times saying us officials were blindsided by this. And can you talk about where that stands?
1: Yeah, I mean, we we were blindsided by Poland's decision to send the jets to us. Um, these are MiG fighter jets. These are not jets that the United States uh, uses or knows how to use. Um, we use F-35s. So giving the MiG jets to us doesn't help because w- we really can't make an effective transfer of those jets to Ukraine, we can't train them on those jets. Um, So um, we told Poland that if they wanted to do that directly, they could. Um, But I think you heard the State Department say yesterday that they view a direct transfer of those jets from the United States to Ukraine as both not the most effective way to get that done, but also um, a, a pretty significant escalation of um, the the war and uh, potential then for the United States and Russia to be in direct conflict uh, with each other. Uh, again, I, I think that President Biden has really done extraordinary efforts um, in getting Stinger missiles, getting um, uh, other ground-based defenses, uh, getting small weapons into the hands of the Ukrainians. Um, I just think that we've got to be careful to make sure that we don't end up in a direct conflict between the United States uh, and uh, Russia. Um, that could, you know, again lead to a global conflict that could draw in all of Europe and, much, and, and end up being much worse than what we are seeing today.
2: Mm. We were talking with Marcy Shore earlier, uh, associate professor of history at Yale University, uh, talking with her about the context about uh, Vladimir Putin and that we cannot assume that we are dealing with a rational actor. And so, Senator Murphy, what will stop Vladimir Putin?
1: I mean, I think that's difficult to answer if you don't believe he's a rational actor, uh, because you can't then get in his head and decide how he is going to react to facts on the ground. Um, Clearly, what he cares most about uh, is breaking NATO and breaking Europe. And so that's why we want to make absolutely clear to him that that is not a possibility, uh, which is why President Biden has done everything in coordination with Europe and why we should be um, uh, reluctant to take steps out of coordination with Europe. Second, We're going to sanction the Russian economy to the point where Vladimir Putin's hold on power will be compromised. He doesn't care enough about Ukraine to lose power. And at some point, the elites that surround him in Russia are going to be harmed so greatly uh, that they are going to question whether it's worth it to stand behind a leader who has lost all sense of reality uh, and connection with facts on the ground. So these sanctions, while they will take a while to um, be implemented and to take effect, uh, ultimately may be our best chance at getting Putin to uh, decide uh, to take a different course. Remember, it was the sanctions um, that the West imposed on Russia after um, the invasion of Afghanistan that eventually led to the fracturing of the Soviet Union. And I hope Putin is is a student of history to understand that if he continues this invasion and the sanctions continue to be applied, I don't know that he remains in power for very long.
2: Are you worried about the possibility that uh, Putin will use nuclear weapons, a uh, top US intelligence officials saying on Tuesday, that you know, we know Putin is determined to succeed, he will double down use ever more brutal tactics tactics. This is what the official said during the appearance before the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, the other day, US officials concerned Russia could be pra- preparing to use chemical or biological weapons in Ukraine, possibly planning a false flag chemical weapon attack.
1: He's already using brutal tactics, right? He is attacking civilians deliberately. And uh, we've seen this playbook before. Anybody who has watched Russia's behavior in Chechnya, uh, more recently in Syria, knows that this is a leader in a military that has no problems um, attacking and targeting civilian populations. I think we will continue to see that. Uh, again, the reason why President Biden is focused on not drawing Uh, the United States into a direct military confrontation with Russia, again, that would be the first time that happened since the end of World War II, Um, or obviously, we weren't at war with Russia at World War II either, Um, is because we are the two great nuclear superpowers. And a conflict between the United States and Russia could lead to the use of nuclear weapons. And so the best way to uh, make sure that this does not escalate to become a nuclear conflict, just to make sure that this isn't a direct conflict between the United States and Russia.
2: Hmm. Uh, President Zelensky spoke to ABC the other day. I just wanted to read a quote. Uh, He was being translated, but he said, uh, when the limits of rising freedoms are being violated and stepped on, then you have to protect us. He was talking about the West because we will come first. You will come second because the way this beast eats, it will want more and more and more. How do you respond to what President Zelensky shared?
1: Well, that's why we are supporting the Ukrainian people in the way that we are. Remember, we've had American soldiers um, inside Ukraine for the better part of the last decade training the Ukrainian army to be ready for a moment like this. There is no nation in the world that has been more supportive of the Ukrainian military, has transferred more weapons, um, has provided more economic and humanitarian aid than the United States. And that's despite the fact that Ukraine is not in NATO. I mean, they are not a country that we have a treaty obligation to defend. But because we agree with President Zelensky, we have been their most intimate uh, partner. Now, if I were President Zelensky, I would be asking for everything from the United States. If I were in his position, I would be asking for America to send a half a million troops to defend my country. Um, But um, we ultimately have to look out For our national security interests, and I don't know that the people of Connecticut would support the United States and Russia being in a a war and having Americans, I mean, literally, you know, uh, tens of thousands of Americans die in that war. So I think that we can provide significant support to Ukraine while uh, avoiding uh, the start of a global conflict that would be much bigger than what is happening in Ukraine today. And that's, you know, listen, I think we need to do more, right? So I've called upon the United States to open up our doors. We need to increase the number of refugees that we are willing to take in the United States. We need to be able to bring Ukrainians here. We need to provide even uh, more uh, humanitarian assistance than we have in this package we're passing this week. So our, our generosity should be, should be big and bountiful, but there should be some practical military limits to what we're willing to do.
2: You mentioned the practical military limits. And so when uh, we see polls uh, by Reuters uh, that, you know, seven out of 10 Americans think NATO should impose no-fly zones to protect Ukraine, Um, eight out of 10 want additional sanctions. There's a a fine line that needs to be walked here, Senator Murphy.
1: Well, I I can understand how the American public would support a no-fly zone if it existed. I mean, it's a little maddening that people still use that term. It literally doesn't exist. There is no no no-fly zone over Ukraine. It's a term of art that we used from the northern region of Iraq after the first Gulf War. We told Saddam Hussein that he couldn't fly planes over the Kurdish areas of Iraq. And because uh, Iraq had no real means to shoot our planes out of the sky, we could impose a no-fly zone. You can't impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine. There are Russian jets and Russian air defense systems that could easily shoot down our planes. So I would support a no-fly zone over Ukraine if such a thing actually existed. Unfortunately, it doesn't. Um, what would exist is immediate combat between the United States and Russia and a declaration of war from Congress. Um, If you ask that question of the American people, do you support a declaration of war against Russia? I don't think you would get 70 percent.
2: U.S. Senator Chris Murphy again is a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Thank you for your time today on the show.
1: Appreciate it. Thank you very much.
2: Uh, still with us is Marcy Shore, who's Associate Professor of History at Yale University. Marcy, I wanted you to respond to what Senator Murphy shared.
0: I think he spoke extremely well. He seems to understand the situation very well. I'm not a military person, so I can't comment on you know, jets going back and forth. I mean, in some sense, the historical question is what will make World War III more likely? If we intervene more, if the West intervenes less, um, you know everybody. E- everybody who knows anything about the 20th century has been thinking about the Munich Conference. We've all been thinking about September 1938 and Chamberlain's, you know, appeasement at Munich. We've all been thinking about, you know, how did, you know, how how was Nazi Germany able to attack Poland on September 1st, 1939? Prepared? How did France then fall that quickly? You know. Um, because we live in a world of, it's possible that World War III will happen in any case. It's possible it will happen in no case, but we don't know because we're not the actor. I mean, one thing I can say is that this there's nothing about this that's in the interest of the Russian people. You know, and so in some sense, the best hope, you know, is for Putin to fall by the Russians and the Russians who are supporting Putin are are believing the story that they are saving their Ukrainian brothers from this Nazi dictatorship in which they are being persecuted for speaking Russian. This is completely fictional. You know, this is not a country full of people who just for sadistic reasons want to kill Ukrainians. Uh, Slavovar Kurchuk, our, our Ukrainian rock star friend, who, who called the Saturday before the invasion, I said, Slava, what is the atmosphere like in Kiev? And he said, Well, Marcy, you know, try to imagine a kind of synthesis between how it must have felt to be in Florida in October 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and how it must have felt to be to be in Central Europe in September of 1939 between you know, appeasement at Munich and the, the, the September 1st, 1939 attack on Poland. You know, basically feels like that.
2: Mercy Shore, thank you for your perspective here on the show. We appreciate
0: it. Thank you so much for having me.
2: You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up after the break, we talk with local Ukrainian-Americans. Do you have questions about how you can help? You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. For listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we hear how AmeriCares is helping respond to the Ukrainian refugee crisis. More than 2 million have fled the country. There are an estimated 20,000 Ukrainians living in our state, including in Stanford, where there's a Ukrainian Catholic cathedral and a Ukrainian museum and library. There's also a School of Ukrainian Studies. My next guest is the principal, Ulyana Yasupiv, is principal of Stanford School of Ukrainian Studies also head of the local Ukrainian American Youth Association branch. Ulyana welcome to our show. Um,
3: good day, Lucy. Thank you for inviting me.
2: Tell us a little bit about your school and your students, Ulyana.
3: Uh Yes, we have actually a very successful school in Stanford. Every Saturday, uh, currently we have 165 students there from kindergarten to 11th grade. So they study language, literature, geography, history, culture of
2: Ukraine. I understand. I believe your daughter also attends uh, this school. And so can you talk with us about how you and the other educators are talking with your students about this war?
3: Um, First of all, I would like to to thank Professor uh, Marcy Shore that she actually gave us some course of history starting 2013-14. Um, but what we are doing at school, we are talking to our students that it, this war didn't begin two weeks ago. It didn't begin in 2013-14. It actually was for many centuries because the first invasion of russia was on into ukraine was um, in 16th century and then in 17th century they actually invaded with russian troops uh, it used to be different it was Moscovia, then russia so um that's when it started so they prohibited languages in back then schools uh, they conducted to speak only in russian to be um, only under the, their government. So it is centuries that we are fighting for our independence and freedom and um, trying to keep up. We have our own culture, our own history. Uh, Ukraine was long before Muscovia was exists. So our students know well the history and they know why, it's going on. So I don't know why all the time Russian government tried to erase our nation. Um, so it's going back back long ago. So it's it's not only eight years. Mm.
2: That history is important. I understand you were at a rally in Stanford last week and you shared some powerful words. I wanted to just quote here. You said, never did we imagine that in the 21st century, we would have to explain to our children what war is, not in the sense of historic events, but as a reality. How am I to explain to my students that their families are in grave danger, that they may be shot and killed simply because we are living peacefully on our own land? Uh, tell us when you were talking to the crowd at that rally, or to reporters. Uh, you know, when you think back to your family that's still in Ukraine. Um, you know, ha- I'm wondering if you can share with us uh, what they're experiencing and how, as a family, you're processing
3: this. Um, you know what we say now. We don't. All my family is 47 million of Ukrainians mm-hmm. all around the world, not just in Ukraine, because we became a big family for all this unbelievable, I don't know, nobody probably would think that this could happen. Um, yes, I have mom in west uh, Ukraine. It's ivano Frankis. So she's, uh, I would say, relatively safe. Um, but uh, also we know what happened in Central Ukraine, East and actually North, South. Uh, of course, you know about recent attacks on maternity um, hospital. Uh, who can do this? Who can kill kids? Who can kill innocents? Who can kill? Uh, uh, it's just not, we can't put this in our minds. Um, I, I will echo Professor Shore that, um, no, we are not Nazis. We are not uh, trying to, I don't know, do do something bad we were a peaceful free uh, nation i that's that's unbelievable what's what happening to us and uh, we are all devastated when i call my friends and they're in the basement cold basement kids actually must sleep there on the ground uh you know how many innocent killed already so the worst part, we even can't get enough, any humanitarian aid there. We cannot give enough of them them, um, any military support like uh, bodygu- bulletproof vest bodyguard, something like that. So we can't help them because any, any corridor we are trying to establish, uh, either to get out people from those cities. Uh, they they don 't care Russian troops just uh, bombing and they they even don't listen to anybody, probably the same as Putin hmm.
2: Again, uh, you're hearing Ulyana Yasipiv here on Where We Live. She's the principal of the School of Ukrainian Studies in Stanford, also head of the local branch of the Ukrainian American Youth Association. I wanted to bring in another voice, uh, Svetlana Levis, uh, who is the president of the Stanford branch of the Ukrainian National Women's League of America. She joins us on the phone. Svetlana, welcome to our show.
4: Hi, Lucy. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me here today.
2: I mentioned the organization that you're with. Can you tell us briefly about uh, the the members and the role that uh, this this group has in our state?
4: Uh, yes, so I'm the president of the local um, 1219 Stanford branch of UNWLA which you said it stands for Ukrainian National Women's League of America. And uh, the Ukrainian Women's uh, League of America was established in 1925 and is the longest running and largest Ukrainian women's organization in the US. Um, our mission is to unite women of Ukrainian descent and affiliation in service, uh, friendship and education in order to promote and develop educational and cultural efforts and humanitarian assistance to Ukrainians worldwide. Our branch was newly founded, I mean in Stanford. We just celebrated fifth anniversary and there are 25 of us um, who are working together. Uh, we actually belong to New England Region Council which includes uh, also Bridgeport, uh, New Haven and Hartford. Um, here locally we um usually were concentrating on the uh, social welfare program. So each year we would um, help childrens uh, in orphanages uh, by collecting clothing and other goods, um, or paying for summer camp camps, or even donating school supplies. Um, there's also a the great program that our local branch was collecting money towards early this year, prior to the war in Ukraine, uh, which helps pay to for doctors to go to Ukraine to treat pediatric band victims, to and to educate Ukrainians. Uh, so also, the
2: helping you. Mm-hmm. Svetlana, so uh, given what um, has transpired in the last uh, two weeks, uh, so tell us more about um, how your organization is responding and how you personally are processing this.
4: Yeah, over the past two weeks, um, I would say our world was turned upside down. My um, bench members and myself personally, we have been receiving so many calls from uh, people in Ukraine. Uh, begging for help as well as from people in our county asking how they can help uh, so uh, we were trying to coordinate uh, those calls um, our branch um, was uh, distributing um letters from our headquarters um to the uh, americans and U- ukrainian community uh, that we were asking to reach out to the president, congressmen, and senators, and other local government representatives to ask them to stop like buying Russian goods, um, implement a no-fly zone, and find a way to stop the war and protect the people on the ground fighting right now. Um, so, we also were um, distributing letters uh, to the hospitals and their vendors asking um, uh, medical supplies and uh, some headquarters were doing that, and we also were part of that uh, but uh, our like local branch was also accepting um, like uh, a lot of like uh, money donations right so we were helping um territorial defense forces which uh, are like they are like um in every uh, county in Ukraine, and we were funding uh, Lviv, Chernobyl, which are on the border with Poland, so they are accepting so many refugees and um, abounding soldiers and civilian hospitals, so we were um, gathering funds uh, to help them with that.
2: Lana, you mentioned uh, the role that uh, local Ukrainian Americans are playing and in, in getting your message uh, of awareness uh, to the public, but also trying to reach policymakers. We just heard from you, a Senator Chris Murphy, uh, talking about uh, the, the aid and the the equipment that's being sent uh, to help Ukraine. Uh, but um, Senator Murphy says that. Uh, The no-fly zone um, is not um, applicable here. And I'm wondering how you respond when you hear that, how you respond to what we heard from Senator Murphy.
4: Uh, I understand uh, where she's coming from, and we are so grateful for so many things that America, American people are doing for us. But we have no choice. They're killing our people. They're destroying our cities. And my family, my so many friends are there. I went uh, to school in Ukraine. I went to college in Ukraine. So it's just we just need to ask for whatever they can do for us. If it's no fly zone, then they need to help us to find other ways to protect our
2: people. You mentioned your family that's still in Ukraine, Svetlana. Can you tell us about them? So
4: I have still um, my mom and my stepfather over there. Uh, she's currently hosting a refugee from uh, Kharkiv. Um, she just was whole week over there under bombing, and she had like a chance to escape, and she's right now with my mom. Um, my sister is uh, temporarily banned uh, uh, by her friends in Italy with her minor kids because her husband is um member of territorial defense forces and he, he like was kind of insist for her to go because he said like if you are away I will know that I like what I'm doing I'm doing not thinking that like where you are and if you are, you are safe so I know that like even in my little village where my mom is from people are gathering food um, cooking food and sending to the refuges and sending to the soldiers. So everyone is working and they do whenever they can to help.
2: For our listeners who also are interested in finding ways uh, to help, uh, can you talk about um, how they might be able to support the uh, the local branch of the Ukrainian National Women's League of America, Svetlana?
4: Of course, they can go uh, to... Um, UNWLA.org and uh, they will uh, be able to donate to humanitarian aid um, that our headquarters is organizing. But also, we have a account in our local branch. Uh, I mean, um, Stanford Bank in Stanford. Uh, they have like access. Like they gather uh, uh, money on our behalf and to many other organizations so they can reach out uh, them and just reach out any ukrainian you know we are working together we have so many resources that we can uh, like send you that you can donate money and support people in ukraine need in right now
2: That website was unwla.org. We'll also have links on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. Uh, Uliana Yasipiv is still with us, again, principal of the School of Ukrainian Studies uh, uh, in Stanford. Uliana, what do you want to leave our listeners with in terms of of how they can help or just how you are responding to your your community uh, during this time?
3: Um you know first of all, I would like to thank uh American community and citizens uh, um the help is uh, huge, and everybody asking us how they help i have i, I where I'm working, everybody comes to my office and asks um if they can help actually they donate in many either goods or uh money donation to different ukrainian uh, volunteering organizations that i'm providing them with um, even our kids even anybody who would like to help we are sending letters to uh, american government president biden senators uh, house representatives um of course everybody explained to us what no-fly zone means, and um, how it can affect um, in future. But we still, we need some, I don't know, meaning no-fly zone for humanitarian aid. Uh, West Ukraine, um, thanks God, it's still almost safe territory. Um, At least help us with more supplies. Uh, every time we are getting calls that not enough especially medical especially surgical supplies for our soldiers who wounded soldiers uh you know ukrainians are so uh, kind for people that they are even uh treating Russian soldiers so it, it's not only a supplies for us it's actually for their soldiers as well because we understand that some they they have moms, they have parents, maybe their parents brainwashed, but still they are human. Mm-hmm. So I know Ukrainians help a lot as well, Russian soldiers. Well, and,
2: thank you. Thank you, Uliana Yasipiv for joining us here on Where We Live and Svit- Svitlana Levis. We hope that uh, your family and loved ones uh, remain safe uh, for those who are still in Ukraine. Thank you for your time today. Thank, Thank you, Lisa. Thank uh, coming you. up after the break, we're going to hear from Stanford-based AmeriCares. First, we know that many Americans have voiced their support of Ukraine, including cellist Yo-Yo Ma. And on Monday, he began a performance at Washington's Kennedy Center by playing Ukraine's national anthem alongside pianist Emmanuel X and violinist Leonidas Kavakos. Here they are playing now. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Stanford-based AmeriCare's response to crises around the world as a disaster relief and global health organization. AmeriCares is sending three tons of medicine and critical relief supplies to Ukraine. There's an AmeriCare's emergency response team in Poland working to meet the needs of refugee families. To tell us more on the phone with us is Kate Deshino, who's the AmeriCare's vice president of emergency programs. Kate, welcome to our show. Hi, Lucy, thanks for having me. Uh, We know uh, that so many people are fleeing Ukraine. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk uh, briefly about the work that's being done on the ground by AmeriCare staff.
5: AmeriCare has an emergency response team in Poland, as you just mentioned, and we're seeing immense health needs both inside Ukraine and in neighboring countries. America's right now has a shipment of medicines and medical supplies in transit with many more shipments planned. And we also have an emergency medical team that's ready to deploy. So every single day, our team is meeting with partners, many of whom are working in Ukraine, where hospitals and health centers are stocked on the medicines. And so, as you just heard, you know, we have a shipment of three tons of critically needed medicine and medical supplies that are heading to hospitals and supporting responders. This shipment was um, sent from our global distribution center, which is located right here in Stanford, Connecticut. And the shipment is intended to address, you know, a range of health needs that we're seeing, including trauma, wound care, antibiotics, and
2: also personal protective equipment. These supplies are so important when we know that thousands are also hiding underground for days on end. Uh, Some have been able to try to get to the western side, to cross the border uh, into Poland. But can you talk also about um, just briefly about also how mental health is a huge part of this uh, to respond to these people experiencing trauma?
5: Mental health is false, and our teams um, have been on the border talking with families to both hear their harrowing stories and understand what the needs are. And for many, life has just changed dramatically in the past two weeks. And so our teams are there, helping people get grounded. Um, our teams are trained in psychological first aid, which means you know we're there to be a listener, we're there to help them get stabilized and make sure they're starting to connect to basic resources they need. And many Cases, what that means is you know, listening and helping them connect to you know, food, water, finding a place to sleep, and basic commodities. In one case, you know, a family that we spoke with who um, fled by train was in a car with you know, that you see usually has two to four people in it, but had over 10. And, you know, when they arrived, they were wondering where they could go to get resources. And their biggest concern amongst many others was, how do I continue getting insulin to be able to treat my diabetes? And that's really where America is focused on how we meet the health needs of individuals. And mental health is one of those top priorities.
2: And it's important that you just mention people who have chronic conditions to make sure that they're being treated, as well as uh, people with uh, disabilities. Uh, Again, uh, listeners always want to know how they can help your efforts at Americares. What can you tell them?
5: The best way to help is to provide financial contributions to organizations who have experience responding to disasters and who understand and are able to meet, the, you know, fluid and dynamic needs on the ground. And so, the best way to help is to follow um, our work at AmeriCares.org and. Americares has experience responding to disasters around the world, including many crises for refugees and migrants. And, you know, we have experience in many cases, you know, sending medicines and medical supplies that are urgently needed, as well as incorporating mental health into primary care. So this is something that, you know, is not days and weeks, but months and years to come.
2: That's Kate Deshino, AmeriCare's vice president of emergency programs. Again, you can check out our website, ctpublic.org, where we live, for information, again, on how to donate to AmeriCares, as Kate mentions, and to the other local Ukrainian-American organizations you've heard from this hour. And we should say state officials have issued warnings about the potential for scams, so always advising you to research any li- link that you click and to opt for reputable organizations. Kate DeShino, thank you for your time today and for the work that you and your team at Americares does. Thank you. I'm Lucina Pothanchel. Today's show produced by Kate Pellico, Katie Pellico. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow.